Okay, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll read verses 13 to 20, but our focus today will be verses 19 and 20. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. There the word of God says this. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you that everything that we need, Lord, for our comfort, Lord, for our assurance and our security in this present life. Lord, you have so graciously provided for us. Lord, what would we be? Where would we be, Lord, without an anchor for our soul? Something to keep us firm and sure and steadfast and immovable. Lord, against all that rises up in opposition to our faith and to our salvation. Lord, if left to our own devices, we would be tossed to and fro. Lord, by the trials and temptations of this life, Lord, by every wind of doctrine that would blow against us, Lord, we would be so far off course that it would lead to our ruin and destruction. And yet, Lord, knowing our frame, knowing that we are dust, Lord, knowing how weak our faith is, Lord, you provide such assurances for us. Lord, such a hope, Lord, that transcends this present earth, Lord, that reaches into the very heavens itself, that goes into the temple, to the very throne of God, and fixes its object upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us, having become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We pray, Father, that today you would increase our faith, Lord, that you would give to us an even greater degree of faith and of hope, so that we would be strong in our faith and stable, Lord, that we would not be as children who are tossed to and fro. So, Lord, be with us today and bless us. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, and it is in Christ in that we pray. Amen. Well, we come today to the end of chapter 6, where the apostle is, at the end, going to transition back to a topic he first introduced in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. He was unfolding for us the nature of the priesthood of Christ, the high priestly office of Jesus Christ. His desire is to explain how it is that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We remember in chapter 5, verse 10, it says, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is what the apostle desires to explain. However, he found it necessary to take a break from this topic to address a sin, a deficiency in the people. He has much to say to them concerning Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek, yet he says it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Though by this time they ought to be teachers, they need someone again to teach them the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And so in chapter 5, verse 11, through the end of chapter 6, he has taken a break from this topic and addressed these issues, these areas, and now he's come full circle again and is back to this topic that we will turn to next week. He is wanting them to have a, a maturity, to have a diligence in attending to their salvation. He wants them to arrive at a greater faith, a greater hope, to have full assurance of hope. And this is what we have looked at the last several weeks. The certainty of God's promise. How God confirmed his promise to Abraham with an oath so that Abraham's faith would have a sure and a steady, a rock of solid foundation. 
God's desire is to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose so that they would be absolutely convinced, absolutely certain that all that God has promised to them, he will bring it about. He will surely fulfill it. And so God gave the promise and he interposed the promise with his oath so that the heirs would have two unchangeable things, the promise of God and the oath of God coming to us from the God who cannot lie. And the result is that we who have taken refuge in Jesus, refuge in him from the wrath of God that is coming upon the world because of sin, that we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us so that we will not grow weary, so that whenever trials and temptations come, they would not overcome us. We would not despond during these times, but rather we would press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. So until our faith becomes sight, until all that we hope for has been realized in our person, right? Many aspects of salvation, we have not entered into the full enjoyment of those things. None of us are in heaven right now. None of us are in the full presence of God. None of us have a glorified body. None of us have been fully delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil, from death, from sin. Yet we have a promise to God that he will give to us the full outcome of our faith, that he will bring about full and final redemption in the heirs of the promise. And though we have not seen these things, and though we have not experienced them, we have good reason to put our hope in them because of the promise of God interposed with the oath of God. We have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So today we will see more concerning the nature of this hope and the use of it, why it is so useful to us in our present life, right? While we are on this earth living the Christian life, we need something to keep us firm, immovable, to keep us steadfast and sure. We need an anchor for our soul that keeps us fixed there upon the certainty of God's promises. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll pick up today in verse 19. Hebrews 6, 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. He says, this hope, this hope being the Christian's hope, right? An essential virtue of the Christian life, a necessary outworking of our faith. There is a hope that is set before us, a hope that all that God has promised to us, he will ultimately fulfill, that it is simply a matter of time. We are waiting patiently for God to give to us the inheritance that he has promised to give to us on the basis of Jesus Christ. This is how Abraham lived. This is how all have lived in the Christian life. Through faith and patience, they inherit the promises of God. There was a hope set before them, a hope that was rooted in the promise of God. And they took hold of this promise in the hope that God would give to them the fulfillment of the promise in due time. It says in Romans 8, 23 to 25, it says, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here he says in Romans chapter 8, there is a hope set before us. And the hope of Romans 8 is the adoption of sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. Though we are currently God's children now, Yet the full outworking of our adoption as sons has not been realized yet. We do not have the full redemption of our body. We're still waiting for the day in which our bodies are glorified. But God has promised this to his children. He has promised to give to us a glorified body. He has set this hope before us. We are waiting for it with patience. We are eagerly anticipating our full and final redemption. And we have strong encouragement to take hold of this hope because we have it given to us by a word of promise. It is the hope set before us. In 2 Peter 3.13 it says, But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
Here, the promise relates to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God has promised to make all things new. God has promised to destroy this present world with fire and to create in its place a new heavens and a new earth, a new habitation, a new dwelling place that is fit for God to dwell with his people. This present earth that we occupy is not fit for God to dwell with his people because this present earth is under a curse. It has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of he who subjected it with hope. It is not fit for a glorified, sinless, perfect people who have been conformed to the image of Christ for this present world is still under the curse of sin. God has not yet renewed this world. He has not yet created a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But what are we waiting for? What are we patiently waiting for? What do we know that God will give us in the life to come? We're looking for this. We're eagerly waiting for God to fulfill this promise to us. And it is a hope set before us. This hope is a firm conviction, right? It is a confidence. It is a certain assurance in the realization of what God has promised. And so the hope of the believer, of the Christian, right? The hope that comes from faith is opposed to worldly hope. The hope of this present world is dubious. It is uncertain. It is an always fluctuating expectation of what may or what may not be. There is no certainty to what this world hopes for. For example, every Saturday in the fall, I typically hope that there's a certain football team from uh, Norman, Oklahoma, that will win a football game. And yet, as we often come to realize, this hope is anything but certain. It is very dubious, and it is always fluctuating. It is what may and it may not be. There is no certainty in it. It's just a desire, a hope, an expectation that you want to be realized, but there is no certainty in these things. It is a desire, but without surety, without certainty, without a guarantee. There's no assurance of these things. But this is not the case with the hope of the gospel. The hope that is born out of faith. The Christian desires these things. The Christian desires the forgiveness of sins. He desires eternal life with God. He desires the full redemption of the body. He desires eternal glory with God. But these desires are not things that may be or may not be. These are things that will certainly be realized in all of God's children. There is no uncertainty with the promise of God, but there is absolute certainty, more certain than anything in this present world. Because what is giving us this assurance? What are the two ungenuable things? It is the promise of God, and it is the oath of God. The word of God, God's promise and his oath, make these promises certain, because God cannot lie. What the gospel hopes in, what it desires, It fully expects these things to be realized because this hope is rooted in the promise of God interposed with his oath. This hope is a firm trust in God for the future enjoyment of the good things contained in the promise. That these things will certainly be enjoyed at the appointed time so that the soul desires these things and the soul expects God to give these things to us. And it is a necessary outcome of faith. Faith that does not produce hope is not faith. It is a false, worthless faith. True faith always produces a hope, a certainty in the promise of God, a desire and an expectation that what God has promised, he will fulfill and give to us in due time. And it is a complete confidence and trust in God. God will fulfill these things because he has the desire to do it and he has the power to do it, right? The desire of God is expressed in the promise. He desires to give to us the full redemption of our body. He desires to give to us eternal life. He desires to give to us a new heavens and a new earth. His promise expresses his desire, what it is that God intends, his purpose of his will. This is what God desires to do. So then the only other component that is necessary for the fulfillment 
is does God have the power to actually bring about the things that he desires and that he promises to give to his people? If God did not have the power, there would be no certainty. There would be no surety of these things. We wouldn't know because maybe God is not able to do these things. However, we're not dealing with men. We're not dealing with men who do not have the ability to do what it is that they desire. I desire that all of my children would live happy, long lives, free of sickness, free of of, of cancer, free of any major disease or of any great turmoil, right? Isn't this what every parent desires for their children? They desire their salvation. They desire for them to have happy, tranquil lives, to live lives free of all of these cares and concerns. That desire is not evil. It is a good desire for a parent to desire good things for their children. But it is a hope that is uncertain because though I, as a parent, may desire these good things for my children, what do I not have the ability to do? I don't have the power to guarantee that my children, none of them, will ever get cancer or ever have uh, to lose uh, a child or a loved one or a spouse. No parent has the ability to control these things because it is not within their power or within their ability. But this is not true with God. Whatever God desires to do, he always has the power to bring it about. Even if it seems impossible. Even if looking at it objectively, looking at it you know, from human, a human perspective, it seems as if there is no possibility that what God has promised, he will actually bring it about. However, because we know that we're dealing with the God who cannot lie and the God who has all power, then whatever God says in his word, whatever promise he gives to man, we have complete confidence that God can bring these things about even if it is impossible to men. God can do miracles. He can do whatever he wants in order to bring about and fulfill his word. Romans chapter 4. This is what was seen in the life of Abraham. Because for the promise given to Abraham to be fulfilled, it, it necessitated miracles, things that were humanly impossible. And there were many obstacles to the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. Yet all of these obstacles, Abraham was able to easily overcome them because his faith was in God, who has the power to do what he had promised. That's what he knew and understand, and we have to understand this as well. Romans 4.16 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now there, that phrase, that is the promise we're dealing with. God's promise to make Abraham the father of many nations. Now when that promise was given, how many children did Abraham have? He had zero. He had no children. Yet how is he going to be the father of many nations if he doesn't have any children. Then he says in verse 17, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. There, the promise, the desire of God, and the power of God are coupled together in the faith of Abraham. God desires, he has stated his desire in the promise that I, Abraham, would be the father of many nations. And therefore, is God able to do it? Yes, he has the power to accomplish it, even if it necessitates bringing life from the dead, which happened in a sense, because Sarah's womb was a dead womb. 
And Abraham was as good as dead himself, seeing that he was 100 years old. And do 100-year-old men with 90-year-old wives who have been barren their whole life, is it typical, general, for them to conceive and have a son? So according to human expectations, there's no expectation that they would ever have a child and that this promise would be fulfilled. And yet Abraham did not waver in unbelief because he knew that the God who made this promise had the power, he had the ability to bring it about, even if it required bringing life from the dead, even if it required bringing into existence things that do not exist. And this is exactly what God did. He brought life from the dead womb of Sarah, and he brought into existence a child that did not exist. This is what God did. So though there were these obstacles to his faith, he was able to overcome them. He was able to overcome because of his faith in the promise of God and in the power of God. Whatever the fulfillment of the promise requires, God always has the power to accomplish it. This is the nature of Christian hope. It has hope, a a surety and assurance that what God has promised, he has the ability to accomplish, and therefore it is just a matter of time until the person, the recipient, the heir of the promise, receives what it is that God has sworn. Now, notice its use. (coughs) In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he uses a twofold metaphor to describe the benefits of this hope. A natural metaphor and then a typical metaphor. Notice first the natural metaphor. He says, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Right? Gospel hope is an anchor for the soul of man. He uses the metaphor of an anchor to describe the benefits of our hope. Right? The anchor is that implement of the ship that holds the ship fast. It keeps it steady. It keeps it stable. And the anchor is useful under two occasions. First, it is useful during times of storm. When the storm brings a violence to the sea so that the ship without an anchor would be tossed to and fro, it would be tossed upon the rocks, it would tend to its destruction. During the storm, the anchor can be let down into the depths of the sea and provide a stability, make the ship steady so that it is able to endure and pass through these storms unscathed so that it is not destroyed and tossed to and fro by the raging sea. And so we know that the Christian life will be accompanied with many storms with many trials and tribulations. As it says in Acts chapter 14, that it is through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom of God. There are fiery trials that we will face in this life. There are the difficulties that are common to man, that all men face. Everyone faces sickness. Everyone faces death. Everyone has the loss of loved ones. Everyone experiences various hardships, trials, sufferings, temptations, all of these difficulties that are accompanying our life. These are storms that we will face. But for the Christian, there are also unique trials that we will face as well that are the result of our faith in Christ, such as sufferings and persecutions, reproaches because of faith in Christ. When we face these trials and temptations, they are like storms. They can be very violent. They are an assault upon our faith, and they tend to the destruction of our faith. We remember in Matthew 13, 21, that the seed that was sown on the rocky ground was the one who had no firm root in himself, but he was only temporary. And what was it that proved that he had no firmness, that there was no rooting in this man's faith. It was the afflictions that arose on account of the word. When those afflictions arose, when those sufferings, those trials, when that storm came upon him, this man had no anchor for his soul. And so what happened to his faith? It was destroyed because there was no substance to it. There was no firm rooting in his faith. And so his faith, being temporary, being spurious, being a faith that cannot save, was destroyed. There was no stability in that man to hold him fast. 
to keep him steady and stable when afflictions and persecutions arose on account of the word. Hope is that anchor that keeps us secure. It keeps us from being overcome and crushed under the weight of trials and temptations. Secondly, the anchor is useful when the ship is in harbor. Whenever the ship needs to be docked, when it needs to be put in a place where it will stay so that the sailors can come to and fro, so that it can be loaded with whatever cargo it needs to carry here and there. The ship needs to be anchored in some way so that it does not move, so that it stays there. If the ship is there in the harbor and the anchor is not let down and it's just drifting there, what is eventually going to happen to it? It's going to drift out into sea. The wind will blow, the waves will change, and the ship will be taken from where it's supposed to be, and it will drift away off into the sea. And so it is with the Christian life as well. We need an anchor at all times to keep us steady, to keep us secure from various winds of doctrine. This is what it talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. He wants us to grow in faith, to become mature, to become sound in doctrine, so that we're no longer like children tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. Our faith is going to be assaulted by various winds of doctrine that are going to seek to blow us here and there. And it is our hope that is an anchor for the soul that keeps us secure so that we are not tossed in this way, drifting always to the left and always to the right, going this way and that way in terms of our faith. It fastens the man to the promise of God so that it steadies him and stabilizes him from all that rises in opposition to his salvation. Here in verse 19, he describes this anchor as both sure and steadfast. It is a sure anchor in that it will never fail. It is a steadfast anchor in that it is invincible against every assault. This is what the anchor provides. It provides surety, it provides steadfastness, so that the faith is not shipwrecked and it is not ruined whenever it faces all of these obstacles to the promises, to the inheritance of these things. This is what Abraham faced when he had no son and he had no child, and he had to wait many years in order to receive this promise. But he had hope that God would give him these things. He did not curse God. He did not turn away from God. He did not blaspheme God and say, God is a liar. You promised me these things, but you've never given them to me. His hope kept him sure and steadfast, resting on the promises of God so that he was able to patiently wait until God gave to him everything that he had promised. And all that rose as an obstacle against the fulfillment of this promise it was his hope that kept him sure and steadfast so that these storms that rose against him did not destroy his faith or his confidence, his assurance in the realization of the promise of God. Now, we ought to make the point. Hope is an anchor for the soul. And hope provides this surety and this assurance, this steady ability, this uh, sure steadiness for us. Not because of the strength of our faith, and not because of the strength of our hope. The most important co component is the object. It is the object of our hope upon which our hope is fastened that gives to us the surety and the steadiness that keeps us firm and stable. Right? Faith and hope are only as good as the object upon which they are fixed. And who is the object of the Christian's faith? Who is the object of our hope? It is none other than the rock who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that steadies the souls of men. He is the one that keeps us sure and steadfast and immovable. It is Christ and Christ alone who is our hope and our assurance and our guarantee. And it is our faith that fixes itself upon Christ. And when our faith and our hope rest upon Christ then it has a very sure and certain foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which all true faith and true hope resides. And it is Christ who makes our faith and our hope invincible against all that rises up in opposition against it. 
So here, the first metaphor he uses is a natural one from the natural world, that being an anchor for the soul. The second metaphor is typical, typical or symbolic, one taken from the arranging and the ordering of the temple and of the worship uh, under the old covenant. Notice he says that our hope is one which enters within the veil. Here, in this way, there is a contrast. An anchor, when it is let out of the ship, descends downward into the depths of the sea. But where does our hope go? It does not go downward, but it ascends into heaven itself. It goes upward into heaven because the rock upon which our hope is fixed is above us. He is seated at God's right hand. He has gone within or beyond the veil. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Describe what it is that he's talking about here. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Hebrews 9, verse 1. says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, and this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Here, he is using this symbolism, this imagery, related to the tabernacle, the construction and the order of the tabernacle. When God gave the rules and regulations for this under the old covenant, the construction and the way the tabernacle it was furnished and built was teaching the people that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed. It had not yet been opened up. The veils of the tabernacle were signifying to their people of their separation from God, that they could not draw near to him. They were excluded from the Holy of Holies. And this separation was signified by these two veils. Right? The first veil kept the people from the holy place, where the lampstand, the sacred bread, the table of presents were found. The priests were permitted to go in there daily to perform their offerings, to offer their gifts and the sacrifices for the people. Such was the case with Zechariah. This is where he was at whenever the angel appeared to him, announcing to him the birth of John the Baptist. And there we even see in uh, Luke's gospel that not even all the priests were able to go in there, but rather they was chosen by lot because it was very exclusive. It was very rare for someone to be chosen to be able to go in and perform this duty. But the priests, the common priests, were permitted in there to offer the daily sacrifices and gifts for sin. This is beyond the first veil, within the first veil, in the holy place. The second veil provided an even greater symbol of their separation. Because behind that veil, even the priests were prohibited from going. 
Only the high priest could go beyond that veil, and he could only go once a year to offer on the Day of Atonement. This was the only time any man was permitted, under those rules and regulations for worship, permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was found and those items that were contained there, where the mercy seat was by which atonement was made for the people. And when you consider the history of Israel, a history uh, of these things being established among the people of about 1,400 years, and you take that and you know, you think about how many high priests would have served over that period of time, it is a very small number in relationship to the millions and millions and millions of Israelites who lived during that time. A group of men that consisted probably of around a hundred people. Only a hundred men in their entire history, over a thousand years, who were ever permitted to go behind the second veil to enter into the Holy of Holies and to perform those sacrifices for sin. The common people could not go in there. Even the common priests could not go in there. Only the high priest, and he was regulated to only once a year on this one sacred day. However, <clears throat> our hope goes within the veil. Not meaning within the veil of the tabernacle constructed by Moses, our hope goes within the true tabernacle, the true veil, the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is the one not made by human hands, one that is not of this creation. The tabernacle on earth was a symbol of the true tabernacle that exists in heaven. And that's where we need to be not in the tabernacle on earth. What good is it if the people go into the Holy of Holies, if they die in their sins and go to hell? What we need is to be brought into the presence of God, for man to dwell with God again. Our hope is fixed upon Jesus Christ, and he has gone within the veil, meaning he has passed through the heavens. Jesus has passed beyond the first veil, which is the first heaven, that is the sky above us. He has passed beyond the second veil, that is the second heaven, that is the expanse where the sun, moon, and stars are found. And where is Jesus Christ currently found? Where is he at this very moment? He is in the very holy of holies. He is in the tabernacle, not made with human hands, the one that is not of this creation. He is within the veil in the very presence of God, in the presence of God even right now. The true, the holy tabernacle, not made by men, not of this creation. That is where Christ has gone. He has ascended into heaven, and right now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is what we remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. This is the only high priest who can bring redemption to his people. The high priest of the old covenant could not produce atonement for the sins of the people. Because in order to do so, where do they have to go? Where does the sacrifice need to be offered? Not on the mercy seat on earth. That cannot take away sin. It needs to take place in heaven at the mercy seat of God, in the true tabernacle, the one not of this creation. And where does Jesus perform his ministry as high priest for his people? Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the veils, and he is now at the right hand of God. He is Jesus, the Son of God. Notice then in verse 20, Hebrews 6, verse 20. It says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The reason this hope anchors us is because this is where Jesus is found. Our hope 
goes within the veil because our hope is fixed upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is within the veil. He is the sole object of our faith and of our hope. Heaven without Jesus Christ would provide no hope for sinners. We would have no hope. The throne of God without a great high priest seated at the right hand of God would not be a throne of grace. It would provide no comfort for sinners. There would be no salvation there, but only the expectation of wrath and the fury of a fire that would consume the adversaries. Without Jesus Christ within the veil, without him ministering as high priest on our behalf there at God's right hand in the very presence of God, there would be no assurance of, of our salvation. There would be no forgiveness of sin. There would be no guarantee that God will be merciful to us, that our sins will be forgiven. All of the promises of God that relate to our salvation, every single one of them are contingent upon Jesus Christ being within the veil and him being a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek of him being at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. Without a mediator between God and man, there is no salvation. And Jesus is that only mediator. And where does he perform his work of mediation? He performs it within the veil, in heaven, in the true tabernacle, at the right hand of God the Father. Without Jesus Christ, God's throne is only a throne of justice where he executes his judgment upon sinners. And we all are sinners. So without Jesus Christ, what would we expect from the throne of God? Only judgment, only condemnation because of our sins. But with Christ there at the right hand of God's throne, within the veil, with him there interceding for us, God's throne, while it still is a throne of justice where God will execute his wrath upon the wicked, but for his people, it becomes a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, a place where we go to receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. It is a place where God forgives us of our sins, where he is merciful to poor sinners. With Jesus Christ within the veil, we know, we have certainty, we have assurance and confidence that all of our sins have been atoned for. That he has offered his body and his blood as the sacrifice for our sins. All of our sins have been tread under his feet. All of our sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. We see with Christ there that there is now nothing prohibiting God from receiving us into his presence from God being reconciled to us, from God receiving us kindly and loving us and calling us his own dear children. In our sinful state, God cannot be merciful to us. He cannot be reconciled to us. He cannot receive us into his presence, into his family. Our sins have made a separation between us and our God. And in order for God to receive us, in order for him to be merciful to sinners, then our sin must be atoned for. We must be made righteous to dwell with God. Well, where is our atonement? Where is our righteousness by which we are acceptable in the sight of God? Who is the source of eternal salvation for all who believe? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And where do we now see him? Where is Christ at this very moment? He has ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and there he is ministering on our behalf, serving as high priest over his people, reconciling us to God and making us favorable and pleasing in God's sight. And he's doing this in the temple not made with human hands, the one that is not of this creation. And by faith, we are able to now see Christ there. By faith, we see Christ there. We see him by faith in the Holy of Holies, at the throne of God. And when we see him there by faith, it gives us assurance. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope that is steadfast, that is stable, that is sure, that is certain. That God in Christ will receive us into his presence. 
that God in Christ is no longer angry with us, but that he loves us as his own children, and that there is an inheritance waiting for us in Christ, and God will give it to us. He will certainly give it to us. Now, that's an anchor for the soul. That is something that will keep us steadfast, immovable, that will overcome every obstacle that rises up against faith and against our salvation. It will rise up against the most difficult of trials and tribulations. No matter how hard the wind blows against us, with this anchor, we will stay on course and we will not be cast upon the rocks to our own destruction. Now notice here in chapter 6, verse 20, who it is that is within the veil, how he describes him, how he mentions him, who it is that has entered into the tabernacle not made with human hands. He says it is Jesus. Jesus, which reminds us of two things. First, this is the name that was given to him at his birth. His name was Jesus. This is his name that he took of when he was incarnate when he was born and took on human flesh. Remember Matthew 1, 21. Matthew 1, 21 and Matthew 1, 25. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 25. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The son of God took on human flesh the Son of God became a man, and the name given to him at his birth, when he took on human flesh, is the name Jesus. And it reminds us that Jesus is both fully God and fully man in one person. And as a man, he was made like us in every way except for one. And what is the only exception? He was without sin. But in terms of his nature as a man, he was not of a different nature, but he was made like us in every way. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same. He has a human nature like ours. He is a true and a real man. And so it reminds us that our humanity, our nature as a man, is united to Jesus the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. So when we begin to wonder, when we marvel, and we begin to doubt and to question this hope that is set before us, because these things are great promises, things that are too wonderful, that no mind can even begin to comprehend all that God has in store for those who love Him. But when we begin to ask and to question and to doubt, how could God ever receive a man into His presence? How could God receive me, seeing that I am a finite creature? I'm, I'm a mere mortal, a mere man. How could one such as me ever entertain the hope of being in the presence of God, of dwelling with God for all eternity? Well, we are reminded that right now, at this very moment, there is a man who is in the presence of God. Right now, this very moment, there is a man who is dwelling with God. There is a man who is sitting at God's right hand. And who is that man who is sitting there? It is the man, Christ Jesus. When Jesus ascended into heaven, when he passed beyond the veil, when he entered into the tabernacle not made with human hands, when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he did not sit down only as the Son of God, but he sat down as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. He sat down with flesh and blood. He sat down with a nature that is like ours. And when we, by faith, see our nature united to his person, it gives us hope and confidence that we will be there as well, that men can dwell with God, that we can be in God's presence, because our nature is united to Christ's nature, and that we will be with him. Secondly, when we see that it is Jesus who is within the veil. It reminds us of his death. This is not a different Jesus than the Jesus that is recorded for us in the Gospels. The Jesus that came to this earth, who entered there into this heavenly tabernacle, is the same Jesus who before he was glorified and before he entered into that tabernacle, 
He suffered and he died on the cross for our sins. The one exalted to the position of highest honor was at one time humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he was crucified on this earth. The glorified human nature of Jesus at this moment still bears the marks of his death. The nail prints are still in his hands. The place in his side where the spear was thrust, it is still there. Those scars remain in the body of Christ as a perpetual reminder. And typically, when it comes to us, we think of scars as a flaw, right? It is a flaw, a blight on the complexion, on the person, to have a scar. But are the scars of Christ a blight upon his person? No, not at all. They're beautiful. They make him more glorious, more beautiful, because they are a reminder that he died for us, and he died what he was willing to do and suffer for his people, and how obedient he was to God as a man when he was here on this earth. He has ascended to this exalted place, but not without first dying on the cross for our sins. So when we see Jesus there, we remember that he is the sacrifice that made atonement for us. And then lastly, notice in verse 20, it describes him as a forerunner for us. A forerunner for us. This is a contrast between the high priest of the old covenant and the high priest of the new covenant. The high priest that came from Aaron, who ministered under the old covenant, they were not forerunners for the people. The people were forbidden from following him into the Holy of Holies. He went into the Holy of Holies alone, and he came out alone. And this all signified that they were excluded from the holy place, that the way had not yet been opened up for them. But our high priest, who is Jesus Christ, is a forerunner for his people. He has entered into the heavenly temple. He has entered into the holy of holies, but not by himself. Not that he would be there all alone and be ministering there. He has done so as a forerunner for his people. He has gone before us, and where Christ is, there we will also be. And he will lead us victoriously, triumphantly into the heavenly temple that we all will enter into the Holy of Holies. All of us will pass and go within the veil. What no Israelite, no common man was ever permitted to do under the old covenant, all of us who are heirs of the promise, we all have this right, we have this access to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This access we even have now, which is why we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 4, he tells us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We draw near now to the throne of grace with confidence. We do so by faith. We do so by our prayers. But one day we will do so visibly and physically. We will in our own body, our glorified body, we will draw near to the throne of grace. We will live for all eternity in the holy of holies, in the very presence of God. God's dwelling place will be with men. We will enter into heaven with him. John 14. This is a great comfort and hope to the people of God. Right? Doesn't this give us comfort as we go through our trials and tribulations? That no matter how severe they are, it's only momentary. And after these light momentary afflictions pass, there is waiting for us the hope of eternal glory, of being in the presence of God. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. It says in Romans chapter 8, John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There he says it. He's going to prepare a place for us that where he is, there we may also be. 
Well, where is Jesus Christ? Where is he right now? He is within the veil. He is in heaven. He is in the temple not made with human hands. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is in the very presence of God. So where will we be? He says, you will be with me. Where I am, there you will also be. He descended to us in his incarnation that we might ascend with him in his glorification into the veil, into the temple, at there with God in his presence for all eternity. The final destination of God's people is that where Christ is, there we will also be. That is the inheritance that is waiting for all of us. And no one can deprive us of this inheritance. No one can take these things from us. They, all a person can do to us in this life, the most valuable possession they can take from us is our life. But after that, what can they do to us? Even if they you know, do horrible things to our body, we're not even there, right? They can't do anything to us beyond taking our life from us. But to deprive us of our eternal inheritance, our enemies, Satan and his minions, right? In order to take that away from us, they would have to pass through the heavens. They would have to enter into the heavenly tabernacle. They would have to go into the holy of holies. They would have to throw God off of his throne and depose Christ as high priest over his people in order to take our inheritance from us. For our inheritance is seated in the heavens. It is kept by God for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in order to deprive us of that, a person would have to go there and take it and wrestle it away from God. And who can do that? Is there anyone who has the power? No one even has the ability to do it because no man can pass through the heavens. No man has the ability to arrive at the third heaven, to arrive in the very presence of God at his dwelling place. And even if, hypothetically speaking, a mere mortal could arrive there. They built a big rocket ship. You know, it'd probably crash over in North Korea or something. But if they did and they made it there, as soon as they stepped foot out of that rocket, what would happen to them as they beheld the presence of God? They would be consumed in an instance. They would be the end of them. They'd be terminated, right? And they couldn't do anything. So no one can ever deprive us of what God has in store for us. This is why we have such confidence, such certainty, we have an inheritance waiting for us, promised to us by God, interposed to us with his oath, and that inheritance is being stored up in heaven for us. It is secured by Christ, who has taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. That is where the crown of glory is waiting for you and me. There is a crown waiting for us, waiting for you, waiting for me, waiting for all of those who long for his appearing. And the only thing between us and that crown of glory is just a little bit of time. Just a little bit of time. That's why the fathers waited patiently. They knew that it was just a matter of time until God gave to them all that he promised. And so they waited patiently for God to give it. And according to the Bible, what is our life? Even if you or I live to be 120 years old, what is that life in comparison to even the existence of the world but especially in comparison to eternity. It is but a breath, it is a vapor, it is a mist, it is a smoke, appears for a second, and then it is gone. The only thing keeping us from our inheritance is the appointed time, the appointed time by God, either our death or the return of Christ. And God has fixed both of those things. Our day of death is fixed, and if our day of death uh, doesn't come, but Christ returns, that day has been fixed by God. So there is nothing that is keeping us from this inheritance, but just a matter of waiting patiently until we receive it. And while we wait, we have hope. We have an anchor for the soul that keeps us steadfast and immovable until the appointed time. This is why God gives us all of these things. He is so good, kind, and gracious to his people. Everything we need for our eternal salvation he has provided and everything he needs to the maintaining and preserving of our faith in this life, he has graciously provided all of it for us.
So if there is any defect or fault, where does it always lie? It always lies in us. And when we are weak, he is strong. And he is able to overcome all these things in us. So then let us fix our hope squarely upon Jesus Christ. Keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. This is the way that we must live as well. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Press on through the many tribulations until we enter into the kingdom of God. But know that it is going to be worth it. It is going to be, none of us can even begin to imagine all that God has in store for those who love him. So let's press on. Let's finish the race. Let's keep running until we reach that crown. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful, Lord, that, Lord, you are mindful of us. Lord, you remember that we are dust. Lord, you know, Lord, that our faith is so weak. Lord, we are like the disciples whom you so often said, oh, you of little faith. Lord, we are filled with doubts and fears, with trepidation. Lord, we get overcome by our circumstances and, Lord, everything that is going on in this present world. And yet, Lord, there is all of these things that are uncertain, they are unsure, at least as they are being perceived by us. Lord, they, if we fix our eyes upon these things, Lord, then our faith will be unsure and uncertain. It will fluctuate and be subject to, uh, to change and to variations. But Lord, we thank you that you have given to us something that is secure, something that is certain. You have given to us this promise, the promise of eternal life. Lord, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, the promise of a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. Lord, the promise that we will be in your presence and we will see you and we will dwell with you and you will dwell with us and you will be our God and we will be your people. And Lord, everything we need to assure us of this promise and its outcome, Lord, you have so graciously provided. You have given to us your word. Lord, you have interposed it with an oath. And Lord, we have seen in human history, Lord, how all of these things that you promised have been fulfilled. And how every promise of God found its culmination, found its yes and its amen in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that all that was necessary for our salvation, he has accomplished. And that even now we see him, Lord, at your right hand, that he has passed within the veil into the true holy of holies, into the tabernacle not made with human hands. And we see him even there now, interceding on our behalf, serving as our great high priest. Lord, we know that even what we are doing now, the prayer that is being offered to you, Lord, the worship that we are giving to you today, Lord, all of it is passing through him to you, he is the one sanctifying and purifying, Lord, every act of obedience, Lord, every act of worship and devotion that we offer to you. Lord, it is only he that is able to make these things acceptable in your sight. And Lord, we know especially that our person, Lord, who we are, Lord, that we become acceptable in your sight only through what he has done for us. So Lord, we thank you that in your wisdom, Lord, you have designed this salvation in such a way that you sent your own son to take on human flesh, to come and to live and to die on the cross for our sins, but that you raised him from the dead and that he has ascended visibly and physically, Lord, with a body like ours, with a human nature like ours, to your right hand. And it gives us confidence and assurance that, Lord, just as you have received Christ into your presence, so you will receive all of his people into your presence and where he is there we will also be. Lord, that you would do such wonderful things to people who are so undeserving. Lord, mere creatures. Lord, even if we were not unrighteous and sinful, why would you condescend in such a way to a creature? But Lord, we know that we were not merely creatures, but we were rebellious creatures, those who had sinned against you. Lord, those who had turned away and who had rejected you and who blasphemed you and lived in enmity with you, and that you would do all of this in order to bring our redemption about, in order to 
secure an inheritance for us so that we can dwell with you for all eternity in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is too wonderful, Lord. Our minds cannot even begin to grasp, Lord, all that you have done for your people. But Lord, we pray that you would make us know the depth and the breadth, Lord, the width of the love that you have for us that is given to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, give us a greater, fuller understanding of our salvation. Lord, may it increase within us. And Lord, as it does, we pray that our faith would grow and that our hope, Lord, would rise to this degree of full assurance so that no matter what trial or tribulation that we face in this life, Lord, we will never despond and that we would never turn away and forsake you. Lord, because we are longing for, Lord, a city above, Lord, a city that is not made by human hands, but one that is there in heaven. Lord, we ask that you give to us the same faith, Lord, that you gave to Abraham, Lord, to all the fathers, to all of those who have inherited the promises. Lord, that we would press on and that, Lord, in due time, Lord, in your appointed time, you would fulfill every word that you have given to us. So, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, give us an even greater assurance and may this comfort us in this present life. And Father, we pray that you give to us in perseverance and endurance, that we might run the race with diligence, fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ until we come to the completion of our course. And we'll give you all the praise and glory. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.